Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, this is a podcast where real women share real stories of real hope. You can check out episode one for the story behind this Story Night ministry and podcast. Most of our episodes are recorded conversations between me and a speaker sharing her story, but some episodes, like tonight's, are recordings of our big live events where a large group of ladies gather to hear a woman share her story on stage with a slideshow of photos, a special introduction from a friend, and musical performances. Our episode tonight is the recording from last month's Story Night, which was on August 3rd, 2023, and it featured Rebecca Glomman. If you want to watch the video version of the event, the link is in the episode notes. Now, tonight's story comes with a big trigger warning. As I told the ladies on the night of Rebecca's story, this is one of the hardest stories to hear. It has very mature topics, including abuse but it has one of the most amazing endings of any of the stories that I've had the honor to record. So hang in there through the dark chapters and take breaks if you're emotionally triggered, but please, please be sure to listen to the ending of this story and be filled with hope. Also at the end of this recording, you will hear about some resources and support from ARMS, Abuse Recovery Ministry Services, which is available nationwide. And the Henderson House, which for those of you who live within driving distance of McMinnville, Oregon, that is our local shelter for victims and survivors of abuse. With that, we will now pick up the recording from August 3rd with the opening song performed by Jamie and Rhea. We pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity, we pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, a voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel. 
so beautiful. Thank you, ladies, so much for doing that. It's a beautiful song. If you haven't heard that before, I hope those lyrics really blessed you. Um, Before we dive into Becky's story, we're actually going to get to hear a little bit about her from somebody else. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Waynette, who's going to tell us all about Becky. Well, I can't tell you everything because they told me to keep it short. (laughs) My name is Waynette. I'm from Sandy, Oregon, and I met Becky probably 20 plus years ago. Don't remember exactly. And I am very honored to be introducing her tonight. But I don't call her Rebecca because to me, she's Becky and I'm Netta. I remember being introduced to Becky around a campfire meeting at her house with some friends from our church. And one of the he ended up being the youth pastor, but at the time, I don't think he was. He was like, well, we have these friends, and every night on the weekends, they have a campfire, and we go around, and we talk about different parts of our Christian life or whatever to encourage each other. So my husband and I went with them, and something about her grabbed my attention. She's very, very sweet, like, sweet. 
and very gracious. Like, you always feel like you're welcome there no matter what. As time went on, we kind of gravitated toward each other because we like a lot of the same things. So we like canning and making jam and picking blackberries and stuff like that. And we like to bake, which I show she, she does not. It's not fair. We both love to sing. We took vocal lessons together. That, she started it and encouraged me to come and learned a lot. It was really cool. We did that for a while. We both love to laugh. So playing jokes, saying funny things. She has this very sweet little girl voice, and she likes to call her grandchildren her toys. And if she sees like a really cute purse or especially shoes, she's like, shoes! But let me tell you, she has a wicked sense of humor. And I have always said that that halo that everybody thinks she's wearing is really resting on some horns. (laughs) She can be vicious. I hope you brought your Kleenex because this story will be very hard to hear. I did not know all of this story as we've been friends for all these years. She only told me some of this a couple of years ago. And for me to know the person that I know to come from the place that she came from is really going to blow your mind. And that is from the grace of God. So I'd like to introduce my very sweet and lovely friend, Rebecca Glaman. Thanks, Netta. I love you, too. I'm just going to start crying right now and get it over with. (laughs) Thank you, Netta, for that. So thank you all for coming. How many of you were adopted as an infant or a child? Some. Great. How many of you wish you'd been adopted? How many of you grew up in a loving, stress-free home with parents that modeled a godly marriage? A few. I'm asking because it doesn't happen all that often. At three days old, I was adopted into a loving family in a modest, lower-middle-class neighborhood in Portland, Oregon that consisted of simple, hard-working folks and three older siblings, all of whom were also adopted. I did meet my birth mother when I was in my 20s. I'll talk more about that later. She had gotten pregnant with me by accident and wasn't married at the time. She had three children before and three children after me. I was the only one to be given away, and I was the lucky one. It was a happy childhood. We learned respect for each other and for all people. There was no fighting, no off-color jokes, and no inappropriate behaviors. We were taught, by example, to be kind, and to always give people the benefit of the doubt. Being the youngest, I was mostly left to my own devices. You know how it is. Number four comes along, and do whatever you want. I don't care. (laughs) So, as a result, I was independent, I was happy, pretty shy, very naive, and quite stubborn. Because I I was used to getting my own way all the time. But I wasn't a troublemaker. I rode my bike through the neighborhoods, with my friends, or at times we went on foot over fences and through bushes in people's yards looking for the imaginary bad guy playing spy. (laughs) My mom didn't drive, so by the age of 10, I knew how to ride the city bus across town to visit my best friend, 
whose family had moved from the neighborhood a couple years prior. 10 years old is also when I started yearning for a baby sister. It consumed me, and I begged my mom and dad to buy me a baby sister. I needed one. But they were already in their mid-40s and didn't want any more babies. That yearning never left me. When I was 24, I met my birth mother and my siblings. The first time I saw my youngest sister, I knew where that yearning had come from. I always say that the Lord told me that she was born. Her name is Rebecca, and she was born when I was 10. <laughs> and she's sitting right there. We were connected by heartstrings long before we ever met. Was it coincidence that we were both named Rebecca? Possibly, but we learned many years later that our birth mother had fostered a close relationship with the attorney that arranged the adoption. So perhaps he told the birth mother what my parents had named me. Or maybe it was God that intervened. Either way, when people ask, we usually say that our mom had so many kids that she ran out of names and started recycling. <laughs> to earn spending money in the summer months, it was customary back in those days to get up very early in the morning, pack a sack lunch, and catch a berry bus that picked up kids from the neighborhoods and dropped them at 6 o'clock at various farmers' berry fields around the region. We picked whichever berries were currently ripe, strawberries, raspberries, blueberries, and sometimes even beans, until about 1.30 in the afternoon. We were paid by cash by the farm according to how many pounds of fruit we picked. I usually ate as many as I put in the crates. <laughs> so while the average earnings were about $5, I made about $2.50. <laughs> then we'd all pile back in the bus that dropped us back in our respective neighborhoods. After picking berries, it wasn't uncommon that a friend and I would walk down to the community pool, swim, cool off, and work on our tan. During the school year, all of us siblings went to Catholic school. Between school and home, I learned that God loved me unconditionally from afar, but expected me to follow the rules, or else. We ate dinner as a family. As soon as my dad got home from work, we said grace before we ate, and we went to Mass every Sunday. When I was preteen, I discovered that I loved roller skating. My dad would drop myself and a girlfriend off at the roller rink every Friday and Saturday night for the two-hour skate session. I felt lighthearted and free as I raced and twirled around the wooden rink to the live music of the grand pipe organ in the center. It was at that roller rink a few years later that my upside-down years began. While Margaret and I were waiting for my dad to pick us up one night after skating, a couple boys came over to where we were sitting on a bench and began talking to us. I was innocent and naive, but something about the one boy set a flock of butterflies loose in my stomach. We met there week after week for a few minutes when skating was over until my dad picked us up. After several weeks, my parents allowed the boy to begin taking me on dates. We went fishing, we floated down the river on air mattresses, picnics in the park, drive-in movies, ice cream parlors, and sometimes we went to his house and I'd visit with his mom while he worked on his car. I had fallen hard in love with him. Six months later, I was 14 and pregnant. My mom had never been pregnant and neither had her sister nor her best friend. I only mention that because she had no way of knowing how strong the bond is between a mother and her unborn child. She didn't know to advise me to protect my heart 
while, while the child developed in my body. She did know the joy of adopting a child that otherwise might not have had a loving family. Consequently, she proposed that the right thing to do was to grow the child for a couple who couldn't have children of their own. She said that God would be happy with my decision and he would place her in a home like ours, a home with parents who could provide love and stability. So that was my mindset through the pregnancy. I was growing a child for a loving family who couldn't have children of their own. But I loved the baby, and I spoke to her often about how wonderful her life would be. I didn't really understand anything. When she was born, after 42 weeks, I insisted on seeing and holding her. The doctor advised against it, but I was accustomed to having my own way. So I threatened to take her home with me if I was denied the opportunity. Of course, the instant I laid my eyes on her, my world changed. I stared at her beautiful face and piles of curly brown hair, and I knew love like never before. I was in the hospital for three days, holding her and crying over her. I cried so long that my face was swollen beyond recognition. I named her Cherie Amour after the Stevie Wonder song. But that was just between me and my baby. Her parents received her birth certificate and chose her legal name. I went home from the hospital without my child and wondered how I would ever go on living or why I should. The boy, who was 18, was long gone. As soon as I started showing, he found a new girlfriend and joined the Army. Still reeling from the heartbreak of losing him, my tender heart now had to also deal with losing my child. I dropped out of school and went to work. By the next summer, I had saved a chunk of money and used it to buy a plane ticket to Colorado where I spent the summer with my friend Joy. We had met in school while she was in Oregon staying with her oldest sister for one semester of high school. She was a year older than me and lived at home with her mom, dad, two sisters, and a disabled brother. It was a happy home, and Joy and I always had fun together. Her parents were kind, and although I still felt broken and empty inside, the time away refreshed my weary mind. One Saturday afternoon, I went with Joy as she attended a friend's wedding in town. The towering Rocky Mountains and gigantic orange rock formations of the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs mesmerized me. And as we drove to the chapel, I wondered what it would be like to live there full time. At the reception, a boy named Terry came up to me and asked if I was there on the bride's side or the groom's side. We had a conversation, and I found him to be kind, courteous, and respectful. He also happened to be about my age. Uh, he was 16, I was 15, and very handsome. He asked if he could see me again before I left to go back home, and I said that I would ask the people I was staying with if I had only known. Joy's mom allowed Terry to come visit me for a half hour each day. We'd sit outside on the patio where we could plainly be seen from the kitchen window. He was very polite. Most days he brought his guitar and played for me. We talked about school, siblings, future plans, and how Oregon was different from Colorado. When it was time for me to go back home, Terry said he would call. 
I was going to miss him, but I felt renewed, and I was anxious to look at options for my future. I finally felt like I could find a reason to go on. Back home in Oregon, I turned 16, got my driver's license, bought a car, and went to work as a delivery driver for one of the banks. I enjoyed the freedom of being alone in the car most of the workday. I desperately tried not to think about Sharia more, as doing so brought waves of sobbing that drained my soul of hope. I focused on being the best employee that I could be and thought about going to school to be a nurse. Alas, it was not to be, at least not then. One day, there was a knock at the door. When I opened it, there stood Terry with a suitcase and a guitar. Dumbfounded, I almost closed the door on him, thinking I was hallucinating. Although he said that he had made a decision to come to see me, at 16 years old, he was essentially a runaway. He arrived without a scent and without a plan. My parents called his parents to let them know he was safe and then agreed to let him stay in our basement. Three months later, I was pregnant and there was a wedding of two teenagers. I was 16 and he was 17. Terry's father and older brother flew out for the wedding and informed us when they got there that they would need a ride back home. So, the day after we were married for our honeymoon, the four of us piled in my Volkswagen Beetle and drove 1,200 miles to Colorado Springs. We stayed with Terry's parents for a few days, and I was able to get acquainted with his siblings, the older brother who had attended the wedding, his wife and daughter, a younger brother, and a younger sister. When it was time for us to go back home, Terry suggested that we stay in Colorado permanently. His parents owned a gas station and a repair shop and had offered him a job. I was eager to start a life away from the reminders of my beautiful girl, so I agreed. Several factors colored those first couple months in Colorado. One, I was a spoiled baby myself and now expected to be a responsible wife. I had never cooked or done housework and didn't know how. And I was in the first trimester of my pregnancy and exhausted all the time. Terry's father was rude, disrespectful, and crass. His mother was tolerant of her husband's behavior and never spoke against him. I found myself being embarrassed for her when he grabbed her body in public or made sexual comments in front of us. He promptly named me the baby wife, and it was not an endearment. I was unaccustomed to name-calling and couldn't wait to get out of their home and into an apartment. Apartment living wasn't as glamorous as I had imagined, though. I was pregnant, tired, couldn't cook, clean, or do laundry. I slept the days away while Terry worked, and he expected dinner when he arrived home. I knew how to scramble eggs and make toast, so that's what we had for dinner every night. But the dishes were piling up, the laundry wasn't done, and I was overwhelmed. I simply didn't know how to get started on any of it. Terry became angry after about a week of it and told me to get it done, all of it, and have his dinner on the table when he got home. I told him I didn't know how, didn't know where to start. He grabbed me by the hair, which was down to my waist, and threw me to the floor, screaming at me that I'd better figure it out. My body felt numb and in shock. It wouldn't move. The thought kept running through my mind was, how did I get here? In the silence of my thoughts, I cried out to God, Father, am I doing this wrong? 
Are you punishing me? What do I do now? I had seen another girl that lived in the building, and in desperation, I went to her apartment and asked if she would help me. I explained that I couldn't cook, but that I had bought a piece of meat and wondered if she could tell me how to prepare it. She laughed. <laughs> it was a good-natured, non-vindictive, non-belittling laugh, and I laughed with her. We became lifelong friends, and over the next couple years, Chris taught me to make simple meals and how to clean up. Meanwhile, the demands on me were increasing at home, and Terry had begun to call me woman. That was also not an endearment, but more of a possessive nickname. He had a list of things every day that I needed to accomplish while he was at work. If he came home and something on the list was not done, he hit me on the side of the head, usually knocking me to the floor. I cried when he wasn't looking and tried to do better the next day. My pregnancy was progressing, and I looked forward to having a child to love. We moved into a rental house, and I set the nursery up with a changing table and a crib. Chris and I had taken up liquid embroidery and made some beautiful, beautiful <laughs> pillowcases and dish towels. We decided to attempt to sell them so we could earn a few dollars for ourselves. Terry and I had been attending the Baptist church every Sunday with his parents, and at the end of every service, the pastor offered an invitation to anyone who had not invited Christ to be their personal savior. Every time, I felt as if he was speaking directly to me, and I felt my legs trying to drag me to the front of the church, but I resisted every Sunday. When the service was over and we were in the parking lot, I would breathe a sigh of relief, but I knew it was something I needed to do. Chris and I thought that the church would be an excellent place for us to advertise our new venture. So we went to speak to the pastor about it. He heard us out and then invited us to his office where he led us both to Christ. <laughs> I don't think we ever did put a sign up about the embroidery. <laughs> the weight that was lifted off my shoulders at that moment was incomprehensible to me. I was as light as a summer breeze and couldn't wait to write my family about my conversion. Although I believed that I was saved, my guilt increased in spite of praying and asking for forgiveness. I felt completely unworthy because of all the wrong choices I had made up to that point in my life, all 16 years of it. It would take me years to shake the belief that paired going to heaven with good behavior. But I held fast to the hope of heaven through Jesus, my Savior. My newfound inner joy did not go unnoticed and was not appreciated. That's when the daily abuse started. I was learning that my mouth was one of my biggest problems. And if I didn't say the right thing, I was beaten. Most of the time, the blows were to my head where bruises wouldn't show, or my head was repeatedly knocked against a wall, or I was thrown to the floor. Two days before my due date, my mouth got me in trouble again. But instead of just beating me, he also raped me. Labor started hard and fast, and Nathan was nearly born in the back seat. Back seat of the car. I was in the hospital four days and slept soundly, feeling safe. While I was in the hospital, Terry had locked our Irish setter in the bedroom while he worked. 
The poor dog had nowhere to relieve herself except the floor. Consequently, when I came home with our son, my bedroom was full of urine and piles of poop. Desperately wanting to lie down and take a nap, I asked Terry if he would clean the bedroom floor. He said he'd do it, but he sat down in the recliner and turned on the TV. I waited for a few hours, and then I quietly got, got up, got the bucket, put some disinfectant in it and some water, grabbed the rags, and went in to do it myself. I was about halfway finished when he came in and saw me on my hands and knees, washing the floor. Enraged, he kicked me from behind in the stitches. It was only by God's healing touch that I didn't bleed out. At that point, I decided to confide in someone about what was going on. I felt ashamed and embarrassed, but I couldn't keep it in to myself any longer. So I told the only person nearby that I thought I could trust, my mother-in-law. I told her everything, the beatings, the rape, the rapes, the degrading names, and the intolerance of my opinions. She listened quietly while I poured out my heart, sobbing and asking what I should do. Then she said something that I had not anticipated, but I absolutely and completely took it to heart. She said, the Bible says that wives are to be submissive to their husbands, so it's your fault. Let me pause right here and say that God does ask us to submit to our husbands, but he never asks his beloved daughters to be abused. I pulled up my bootstraps and decided that I would do and be what my husband wanted because I believe that's what God was asking me to do. I loved being a mama. I spent the days studying every detail of my beautiful son from the blonde curls to the little square toes. He was a happy, inquisitive baby who wanted to touch and taste everything. So I did my best to give him new experiences every day, mostly outside in nature. Shortly after Nathan was born, Terry changed his own birth date on his driver's license to make himself a year older and join the Navy. I was pregnant with our second child and enjoyed the time alone with Nathan while he was gone to boot camp. Once he finished, the baby and I joined him in San Diego. Oh, he's so cute. <laughs> and a few months later, he was transferred to a, a base in northern Illinois. Alone and isolated again, the beatings became worse every day. Nights became unbearable. He would dream that I had cheated on him, wake up in a rage, and beat me for cheating before sexually abusing me to the extreme. In the morning, he'd act like nothing had happened, and I was expected to do the same. I was losing myself and wondered often if, if I was in a horrible nightmare that I would eventually wake up from. One day, a few weeks before Christomy was born, I was dusting the tops of the cabinets and found a giant bag of what looked like dried, compressed garden weeds. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what it was and why Terry always seemed to have extra money lately to go out with the guys at night. 
Pot was, of course, illegal back then, and I was infuriated. The dumpster seemed like an appropriate spot for it, so I threw it away. <laughs> when he came home from work, I knew I'd get a beating, but at that point, I was going to be beaten anyway, so it might as well have been for a good reason. When he found out what I had done, his rage was like anything that I had seen before. He went to the kitchen, grabbed the cord off of the crock pot that sat on the counter, and pulled me up the wall by my neck using the cord. He was screaming at me, but I was inside myself, praying, asking God to find a safe and happy home for my son. Suddenly, I was above my body, looking down on it, lying on the floor, and then I wasn't. I was in pain and struggling to catch my breath. Terry had either thrown me to the floor or let me fall, and he was sitting on my legs, screaming obscenities at me. The next thing I remember was the military police barging in and seeing them haul Terry away. I was taken by ambulance to the hospital where I was treated and released. My unborn baby had not been injured, and a neighbor had taken Nathan and kept him until I got home. Terry was in the Navy brig for two months. They asked me if I would testify against him, and I refused. I was scared of him, and I had two babies. He was thrown out of the Navy with a dishonorable discharge. We packed up our things and moved back to Colorado. Nothing changed. I felt unappreciated and unloved, alone and unworthy. I began to question everything, my feelings, my faith, my motivations, and especially my purpose. I found myself reliving the moment of my conversion and questioning the validity. Did I really accept Jesus as my savior? Was there something blocking him from being present in my life? I've heard that there's an unforgivable sin. Had I committed it? I focused on my babies. Christy was tiny and sickly for the first year of her life, and I was, of course, pregnant again. Terry didn't tolerate crying or noise of any kind by the kids, so I made sure they were fed and in bed for the night by the time he came home from work. That also spared them from seeing the violence that ensued every night when he discovered some erroneous grievance that I had committed. Something I said, something he heard, something I did or didn't do, or whatever. That summer when I started showing, Terry announced that he didn't want any more children and that I would be giving this one up for adoption. My heart jumped immediately up into my throat and I gasped in horror. Oh, God, please, no. I can't do that again, I prayed. The first time nearly broke me. I can't even utter her name without crumbling into a heap of racking sobs. I can't do it again, God. I'd rather die, please. There must be another way. At the beginning of August, I was about 16 weeks into the pregnancy. I felt good, and the baby was healthy. I tried not to think about what would happen when it was born. I couldn't think about it. One day, all four of us were outside in the yard. 
The kids were playing with the water hose, and Terry was building a small fence, small wire fence, using cinder blocks as supports. He asked me to help him, and I ran right over. Unfortunately, while I was holding the metal stake upright for him, I asked him about keeping the baby. He picked up a cinder block and hit me in the face with it. Well, he screamed at me that he was the man of the house and the decision had been made. Bleeding and dizzy, I went into the house to clean up my face, which was quickly swelling. My nose had taken most of the brunt of the blow, and it had an odd stinging sensation to it. The next morning after Terry went to work, I was drinking my coffee when labor started. I called my friend Chris, and she came right over to stay with me while I miscarried. I cried alligator tears for the child that I would never meet the sight of heaven. But I thanked God for seeing fit to take the baby from me so I didn't have to give it away. That night, Terry took me to the hospital for a DNC. The doctor that did the procedure asked me how my nose got broken. I told him the truth. They kept me overnight. The next morning, they discharged me. Something snapped in me after the miscarriage. I didn't want to live like that anymore. I made a plan, and at Thanksgiving that year, in the middle of the night, I packed our clothes in a trash bag, put the kids in the car, and drove back to Oregon. My brother had young children, and he welcomed us into his home. I didn't tell him why I'd left, just that it wasn't working out. I bought a cheap car and planned to go out and find a job so I could support myself and the kids. Unfortunately, Terry found us. He was very charming when other people were around, so my brother never suspected that he was putting me back in harm's way. Terry drove us all back home to Colorado and then sold the car that I had bought. Bullied and defeated, I felt locked into a life of abuse and fear. I tried to imagine my life 10 years down the road, but I, I could only wonder if I'd still be alive. I knew I had to get out, but he kept saying he loved me. Sometimes after severe beatings, he would say that he would never do anything to hurt me. But did he not know that he hurt me every day? Did he punch me and then forget? I wanted to believe him because he was the father of my children. He'd been my choice for a husband, and most important reason, my Catholic upbringing said that if I divorced him, I'd go straight to hell. So there I was. A few months after I miscarried, I got pregnant again. Terry didn't say anything about giving the baby away, and I looked forward with disquieting apprehension to holding another precious miracle. It was another boy, and we named him Brigham. He was the easiest baby. He loved to snuggle, and he clung to me. My friend Chris had moved back to California, and with no other friends, I felt truly alone. But I still had my misinterpretation of my salvation and my faith. I still wanted to be who God wanted me to be, but that girl's sense of worth was being chipped away every day. Let me pause for just a moment and explain to those of you who wonder why women stay in abusive relationships. 
Part of it is a sense of loyalty or doing what's right, but there is an entire other tactic used to squash any idea of leaving. Every day, in addition to the physical abuse, I heard things like, you're fat, you're skinny, you're stupid, your hair is red and curly, your legs look like sticks. Who would ever want you with that eye? You look like a circus freak. I was young and took all of it to heart because I believed all of it was true and there wasn't anything I could do to change it. In those days, women didn't talk about abuse in the home. It just wasn't done, partly because of the response we got when we did speak up. The police didn't care. Doctors obviously didn't know what to do or who to call. And family assumed you did something to deserve it, but not my mama. I made the mistake of telling her one time after a particularly brutal beating where I saw stars and had a big chunk of my hair pulled out. She cried on the phone and begged me to come home. The next day she called Terry crying and pleaded with him to not hit her Becky anymore. That did not go well for me. I got the whole works and it effectively shut my mouth. By that time, I had begun to imagine ways to get revenge. I knew those thoughts were wrong, but at times I entertained them. I felt the gentle nudge from the Holy Spirit that reminded me that I was supposed to take every thought captive. And I knew that I needed to focus my mind on something constructive. I'd written poetry from the time I was a little girl, and as I grew, my poems became more meaningful and interesting. I wrote for myself, I wrote for other people's special occasions. A couple of them were even published in a local newspaper. My dad always told me that if I wrote 100 poems, he would pay to have them published in a book for me. So during the day, when I had a few minutes, I poured my heart into writing. They were lighthearted and bright with promise, beauty, humor, and hope. It lifted my spirits to be able to express myself, and I began to feel more like myself than I had in the five years that I'd been married. I had written 73 good poems and could see that the day would actually come. Terry would half-heartedly listen to a new poem that I, when I finished it and then tell me why he didn't like it. But my inner joy at the idea of having my own book of poetry could not be stamped out, or so I thought. Terry came home one cold winter day with his usual white glove that he swiped over surfaces in the house to determine if I had done my cleaning duties for the day. I was just putting dinner on the table and a nice warm fire was burning in the two-sided fireplace that separated the kitchen from the living room. Unfortunately, he found some dust way up high on a bookshelf. He showed me the fingered glove with the dust on it and I immediately grabbed a rag and began to drag a chair over to the bookcase so I could climb up and wipe it down properly. Before I could get there, he grabbed my stack of 73 handwritten poems. They were on the counter where I'd set them and he tossed them in the fire. 
That scene still plays in my mind in slow motion. I, had, I didn't write another poem for 30 years. <laughs> that was it. My hope was gone. He was right about everything. I was a worthless human being that nobody would ever want. This was to be my life. At 21 years old, I was utterly losing my identity. I lived in fear and had stifled my own ideas and dreams into non-existence. Not even God paid any attention to me. I hung my head in public because I felt so inferior, so disgusting to look at. I felt that everyone who saw me must have been laughing at my repulsive appearance. But God had a plan. I had been to the eye doctor for an exam. My eyes were dilated and I was wearing those lovely dark disposable glasses. There was a Chevron gas station in the neighborhood and I pulled in to fill up. A young man with a big bush of brown curly hair came to pump my gas and unwittingly changed my life. His voice was mesmerizing, but straining with all my might, I couldn't focus with my pupils so big. He filled the tank, I paid him, and before I left he said, Wow, you have a great smile. Something came alive in me, and in a rush of memories, I knew that I was loved by my family in Oregon, and that God loved me. I still hung my head, but there was an ember burning in my soul, an ember that just needed some fanning. Of course, I continued to go to that Chevron for gas. <laughs> The young man named David was handsome and kind. He always said nice things to me, and I fell in love from afar. But we were both married to other people, so I never told him anything, just secretly loved and appreciated him, and never forgot him. I had always tried to keep the kids away from Terry as he didn't tolerate noise, but the two oldest kids had seen enough to know that there was violence in the home. In a moment of remorse, Terry produced a gun and stated that he was going to kill us and himself because he was sorry for the mess that he had made of everything. My oldest son snuck into the living room and called 911. And a few minutes later, I heard a man's voice on a bullhorn calling Terry out by name. We have the house surrounded, Mr. Jones. Come out with your hands in the air. I glanced out the kitchen window and felt like I was living through a movie scene. It was midday with a dark gray sky. The wind was whipping around in swirls of tiny hurricanes, grabbing dried leaves and bits of autumn rot off the ground. There were cop cars in a semicircle in front of the house. Each one had a cop crouched behind his car door with his gun drawn and pointing our direction. Terry did as they asked and was taken to jail. I breathed a sigh of relief, thinking surely they would keep him this time because a firearm was involved. They didn't. His mom bailed him out and he was home before the day was over. The last straw came when Brigham was not quite two years old. Terry had a rare moment when he wanted to pick Brigham up and hold him. Brigham barely knew his father and cried, trying to get away from him, reaching for me. The rejection infuriated Terry, and he threw Brigham across the room. That was the end. 
I knew at that moment that if we didn't get away from him, I would seriously consider lighting the bed on fire while he slept. That very night, I once again threw clothes in a garbage bag and we left for good. I obtained a restraining order, stayed in Colorado long enough to get divorced, and then hightailed it home to Oregon. The violence was over, but I was not the same girl who had left Oregon seven years prior. I was still stubborn, shy, and independent, but in addition, I harbored a basic fear in my gut. I was afraid of people and not certain how to move forward. But God had a plan. I immediately went to work and rented a little house next door to my brother and his family. Being uneducated, I couldn't afford daycare, but my sister-in-law graciously offered to watch my kids while I worked. I usually had two jobs, a full-time day job and a part-time evening weekend job, either cleaning houses, ironically, or, <laughs> or waitressing, which I was not good at, never. When the kids were a little bit bigger, I, we moved into a trailer park that was close to my day job, and I worked. The kids no longer had a babysitter and were left home alone. The oldest was 10. I began to see signs that the two oldest kids needed help with their mental health, but I didn't know what to do about it. Chris to me was about eight years old, and we were in the car one day, and I was pulled over for speeding. As the officer approached the car, Christamy rolled her window down and flew at the cop, screaming and crying hysterically, please don't take my mom to jail. It was heartbreaking for me to see my daughter suffering from my mistakes. I wasn't sure what to do about it or who to talk to, so I brushed it aside and told myself that we would all get through. I sent the kids to Sunday school and Awana, but I rarely attended church as I was either working at a job or catching up on chores at home. I did pray and read my Bible, but my perception was still warped. Ten years after I had left Terry, the flashbacks began, and they lasted five, maybe seven years. I had blocked so much of the violence out as a protective measure but it was time to process. 11 years after I had left Terry, at 33 years old, I married an emotionally abusive man named Keith, a perfectionist, extremely creative, fun to be with, but also intense, controlling, and intolerant of opinions and beliefs other than his own. We had met through work several years prior and had become friends. His lifestyle was that of a young unmarried bachelor, and he often spoke of his exploits. However, a few years into our friendship, he had accepted Christ as his personal savior, and I saw his life turn around. He married, and then quickly divorced, a lovely girl, and they had a beautiful daughter together. I had the privilege of babysitting that little angel occasionally. One day, it occurred to both of us, Keith and I, that we were attracted to each other, and we began to date. Shortly after, we were married. I had been groomed for acquiescence, so I said and did what I thought he wanted me to say and do, which kept the peace between us. Of course, I didn't realize until we were married. 
and he began isolating me by driving my family and friends away, my kids, my sister Rebecca, and his own entire family. When it occurred to me what I had done, I had to make a choice, so I stayed, determined to live the rest of my life with this man and be happy about it. I wanted to honor the vow I had made before God, so I asked him to change my heart. Allow me to see my husband through his eyes. We had joined a church family in Sandy, Oregon before we married, and my faith began to grow as I interacted with other Christians, studied with them, and participated in being part of the body of Christ. Keith and I owned a manufacturing business that required me to go visit Yamaha shops around the country where our products were sold. I would load up a van with products once or twice a year and hit the road for a couple weeks. I had entire days of travel when it was just me and God, praising him through music and praying and crying for hours. I wasn't sure where all the tears were coming from because I wasn't sad. It was deep emotion that roiled up from the depth of my being. On one of those trips, almost 20 years after Terry and nearly a decade into the new marriage, I stopped by to see a girlfriend of mine in Southern California. She took one look at me and said, you're glowing. It was at that moment that I came to the realization that God had healed me of the pain inflicted by that first marriage. My joy bubbled inside and my faith in Christ was solidified. For the first time in my life, I began to see myself through the eyes of my father. His creation, made in his image, perfectly human, loved unconditionally, just as I am, with all my faults and imperfections. It was as if the chains that held me fell away, and I had new eyes to see my world as God intended it. In that time, I also realized that my father had planted a dream in my heart long ago to be a nurse, and that time had come. We had sold the business and were tinkering with a new one that didn't interest me at all. So I enrolled in college to start on my prerequisites to nursing. I was so excited to be learning and looked forward to the goal of being a nurse someday. But there was resistance from my husband. He wanted me home with him, working on the new business. So I dropped out of college out of, after one term and tried to help him with the startup. I was mostly in the way, and my heart was heavy. I felt the urging of the Holy Spirit telling me to pursue my dream. And after missing one term of school, I re-enrolled and thrived in the academic world. Keith was not happy about me doing something that didn't make any money, and he began to grow distant for the first time in 16 years. In those 16 years, my kids grew up and had children of their own. We never spoke about the years of violence with Terry, but all of them voiced their mistrust and distaste for my choice in men. The boys both moved across the country after high school, but Christamy stayed nearby. I saw her almost every day, even though she and Keith butt heads on a regular basis. His determination to drive a wedge between us strained the relationship I had with Christamy, and I prayed for the Lord to show me the solution. I couldn't honor my husband and openly love my daughter as I wanted without making my husband angry. I know some of you have questions. 
Why did I stay so long in a physically abusive relationship? It's complicated. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I can tell you with certainty that the emotional abuse plays a big part. If I had possessed any self-esteem, I wouldn't have stayed as long as I did. One of the tactics of an abuser is to make you think you have no choices. Why did I go from physical abuse to emotional abuse? And was that better than physical abuse? I didn't see it before we were married. I think somewhere in my subconscious, I saw myself as damaged goods that didn't deserve any better. The emotional abuse is much harder to heal from than the physical. There are some wonderful women here from Abuse Recovery Ministry Services who can answer questions for you, offer resources, and support. Could my mama have said anything that would have been helpful? If she had been able to keep her emotion out of the equation and simply told me that she loved me and that I didn't have to live that way, I might have stewed on that and come to a solution earlier. But who, what mother could do that when your baby's being beaten and you're 1,200 miles away? On my birthday in September of 2007, the end of my second year in college, Keith asked for a divorce. Happy birthday. I was, once again, devastated and crushed. This time, holding fast to my father's hand, I moved into an apartment across the street from the college and focused my attention on finishing my classes. That was October 1st of 2007. At the end of December of that year, just a couple months away, I would have everything I needed to be able to apply for the highly competitive nursing program, barring any unforeseen bumps in the road. However, one month later, in November of that year, I had a call from the hospital's radiology department. They wanted me to come in for a fluoroscopy, a kind of moving x-ray. The radiologist explained that they had seen something on an x-ray they had taken six months prior that needed a closer look. So six months earlier, in April, I was studying at the dining room table when suddenly one side of my face went numb. I thought I was having a stroke. My husband called an ambulance. I was whisked away to the hospital where a barrage of tests were done, all with normal results. And in the end, it was determined that I had pinched a nerve in my neck by the posture I used, hunching my shoulders up while I read and studied. I'm not sure why it took him six months to read that x-ray, but I'm thankful that God had a plan and it was in his timing. That scan and the subsequent biopsy revealed stage 3B lung cancer. And in December of 2007, that's 15 years ago, my entire left lung was removed. I had not finished the school term and needed one of those classes to be eligible to apply to the nursing program. Through the kindness of my anatomy and physiology instructor, I was allowed to skip out on the last month of class and still receive the grade. My acceptance into nursing school, my journey through school, my housing, my car, my entire life was so obviously orchestrated by the wondrous and mighty hand of God. But that's a whole different story. As it turned out, I graduated from nursing school in Gresham, Oregon, moved across the country, and began working in a hospital in a small town in southern Virginia, near my sister, as well as my son and his family. 
After a couple years, I began to work as a traveling nurse, taking three to six month contracts in different parts of the country. It allowed me the freedom to be near my son part of the year and with my siblings and elders part of the year. I made good use of the extra time by going back to school online and finishing my bachelor's degree in nursing while I worked. I was content and resigned myself to being single for the remainder of my life. I was finally comfortable in my skin, making enough money to support myself and loving working as a nurse. But God had a plan. I was scrolling through Facebook one day, about seven years after my surgery, thinking about the boy with the big bush of brown curly hair, and wondered if he was on social media. I found his name, but there was no picture. I decided to take a chance and wrote him a nice letter that started with, David, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I want you to know that your kindness all those years ago had a profound impact on my life, and I'm forever grateful. Not sure if I would ever hear back from him. I sent it on Messenger and forgot about it. But I did hear back. He knew exactly who I was, and he had thought about me through the years, too. My heart soared. We got to know each other over the next couple of years via social media, and in September of 2017, nearly 40 years after we met, we were married. He is the sweetest, kindest, most thoughtful man, and I've never been loved like this. He puts my needs before his own, always. He applauds my every accomplishment publicly. He does all the laundry. <laughs> 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 He's retired, and I work. Every morning he gets up to make me breakfast and pass, pack my lunch. If I say that I'm hungry for something sweet, he jumps in the car and goes to the store. He usually comes back with ice cream, candy bars, and cookies, which <laughs> explains a few things. <laughs> he encourages me to go after my dreams. If I want to go shopping or to the salon, he drives me and waits for me in the parking lot. He brings me flowers for no reason. Oh, there he is. <laughs> he bought a boat, spent a year refurbishing it and rebuilding it, and then named it Rebecca. I could spend days talking about his kindness, but I'll just tell you that he has a heart that goes with the suit. <laughs> Kids recognize him as Santa year-round because he not only looks like Santa, he also exudes playful kindness. But God still wasn't finished with the blessings. When COVID hit, I was unable to work because I can't wear a mask. They say that wearing a mask doesn't affect how much oxygen your body receives, but the mask gives me anxiety, and the anxiety triggers my asthma. Uncertain about how long the pandemic would keep me from my career, this high school dropout went back to school online yet again and earned a master's degree in nursing. <laughs> Thank you. In January of this year, I started working as a hospice nurse, and I feel that I have found my place in the medical world. But there's one more blessing that I still can't believe is true. 
remember Sharia more? <laughs> she came looking for me. I can't even express the enormity of my joy. <laughs> that Sharia-shaped hole that I carried in my heart for almost 50 years has been filled by this beautiful girl. <sighs> Full circle blessings. My story started with adoption and it ended with the same topic. But through the 65 years in between, God wove his story of grace through my life. He has adopted all of us, regardless of what our story entails, whether by our own faults or by the cruelty of others. He's always there, loving you unconditionally and intervening on your behalf for his purposes. As the lyrics to this next song say, in the middle of the hardest fight, it's true, I will rescue you. Thank you.
Thank you, ladies. If you haven't heard that song before, it's pretty powerful, huh? Well, normally, if you've been here before, you know this is when I pop up and talk about the next story night and invite you all to register, and we're going to do that. Um, but we wanted to give a, a little bit more of a buffer here in this closing. We know that this was such an emotional story. But was I right? It has an amazing ending. Yeah, in fact, I don't know if uh, Mr. and Mrs. Claus feel like standing up for a little round of applause. Because <laughs> he's here, Santa's here. <laughs> thank you so much, Becky, for sharing that, for sharing your story. It was so hard. But I know your story has a purpose. And the beautiful things you shared, I know, resonate with some of you. And, and that's what I wanted to take just a moment and, and let you know that Becky shared, obviously, some very hard things. Um, but those are not things that are for you to suffer alone. So if any of those things resonated with you, we want you to know that we have some amazing resources and some amazing people here. In fact, I'd actually love to invite up Rachel and Julie. These ladies are here this evening. They have a table over here. Um, if, whether it's your personal story or maybe somebody you love, a daughter, a, a friend, a sister, a mom that, that might need these resources. So if you'll come up and we'll introduce yourself quickly and maybe just share a little bit about what you have to offer. This is actually one of our former Story Night speakers. It hasn't been so long since I've been on this stage. Hi, everybody. And kudos to David, because, you know, when I go speak, my husband is the only guy in the audience, too, as well as the sound guy. So thank you for coming and supporting. Rebecca, your story is amazing and beautiful. You are brave and courageous. We're so glad that you shared. Thank you. So, uh, Julie, my name is Julie from ARMS, Abuse Recovery Ministry and Services. You may have heard of us. I wanted to give you a little reminder tonight, and that is that, as she mentioned in her story, abuse is not all physical. So you may be out here wondering tonight, am I in a healthy relationship? And at ARMS, we actually teach that there are eight types of abuse, and that includes emotional, that includes spiritual, that includes financial, that includes property abuse, animal abuse, um, and verbal abuse as well. And what I want you to know tonight, it is never, ever God's will for you to submit to abuse in your life, ever. It is not his plan for you. You are worth more than that. You are a daughter of the most high king. How much higher can you get than that? You deserve to be taught. You deserve to be treated like a daughter of the most high king. So we have several programs at ARMS. Um, we have uh, Her Journey Group, which is for uh, survivors. And whether you're currently in your situation, we still love you. 
if you're out of your situation, we still love you, come to a Her Journey group. It saved my life. You've heard my story. Many of you have. It absolutely saved my life. And now we have now sent over 40,000 women through this program. And weekly, weekly we hear this program saved my life. I would not be here without Her Journey because it gives you the true biblical interpretation of what the Bible really means when it says submit, when it says headship. I don't know about you, I used to shudder when I heard those words until I heard the meaning behind them, the Hebrew and the Greek versions. So come to group. You'll have a group of women who support you, who love you, who have been there, and who get it. And that in itself is very healing in addition to the program. And then we also have intervention. So if you have people in your life that have been abusive, either men or women, we do have local programs called Mankind and Virtue that are also faith-based have a very good rate of success, um, and at home, if you are one of those victims, you can set a boundary and say, I've had enough, you need to go to a program, you need to get help, and I need to see some progress in this. So those are the three programs that we have at ARMS, and our fourth arm, like I like to say, <laughs> is community education. So we are available to come teach, whether it's small staff, big staff, whether it's your staff meeting at work, wherever you think it might be helpful. It can be secular or faith-based. Either way, we are out in the community and we do a lot of training on what abuse really is um, and how you deserve much better. So on that note, there's a local resource called the Henderson House that Rachel is going to talk to you about. Thank you, Julie. I also want to just thank Rebecca for sharing that story. It's so powerful. And Julie and I have a mutual... I shouldn't say friend. My mom <laughs> is a friend of Julie's because she went through the arms groups as well. And as a result of that, I began volunteering with them and facilitating groups years ago. So that's where I got my start working with survivors. And now I serve as the development director for Henderson House. We are the only emergency shelter and advocacy center in Yamhill County, serving survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. We have these rack cards at each spot. Hopefully one got to you. If you don't see one at your seat, um, we have more up here. But it just goes over you know, some common red flags. You'll see our contact information, including our 24-hour crisis line, which is a local line with our advocates they schedule out who's going to have the phone when, and they're always available to respond in a crisis, or if you have questions, don't hesitate to contact us through that line. We also provide one-on-one -on -one advocacy support, so a survivor will contact us. We serve men and women, but 95% of our clients are women. Our clients will contact us, and many don't know where to start, so our advocates will help talk them through maybe creating a safety plan, how to figure out a way to safely leave an abusive situation. We also provide that support on a daily basis, sometimes for weeks or months. We have a 30-day emergency shelter in a confidential location. So if someone's in a situation where they're fearing for their safety, we can come to them. We have a vehicle, can get them to safety right away. Uh, we also provide resource referrals. Often our survivors are starting over. They may just come with the clothes on their back. So we help guide them to the resources available 
to them in the community. And when they are able to land in a new situation, we provide those essentials, pots and pans and towels, cleaning supplies, the things you need. And when you're in fight or flight mode, it's really hard to think of what do I need. We have support groups on an ongoing basis. Weekly, we have a domestic violence survivor support group and a sexual assault survivor support group. And we do outreach and prevention work at the high schools. If you have any questions for me tonight, please don't hesitate to come and talk to me. And you have our contact info if you want to reach out this way. I also have some business cards with ways to get directly a hold of me. So with that, I'll hand it back over. Thank you so much, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, as they were sharing, I was just thinking too, there may be some of you that maybe you're in a position where you, you actually want to help. Like maybe you're thinking, I, I feel called to this. How can I volunteer? Um, maybe there's a resource you could provide, or maybe you want to be trained in the leadership to help uh, victims and survivors. So if this pulled on your heart in that way, again, that table, they are there for just anything you might have, whether it's a question, your personal story, wanting to help, uh, or something of that nature. And so now, ladies, I want to Thank you all for being here. I want to give another huge thank you to Becky for sharing her story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to close us out in a prayer. I just want to pray for all of you and your stories. Lord, right now, I just want to come before you and thank you for these events. Thank you for these stories, God, even the dark, dark, hard ones. The tears that flow from our eyes, you see them. And these women are not alone. You recognize our stories, and you are there. And just like we were reminded in Becky's story, you have these plans, and there is a good, joyful, happy ending. And so, God, for all the women right now in this room who maybe are in one of the, one of the valleys uh, or a dark part of their story, God, I pray that they are just around the corner from their amazing Santa Claus ending. Lord, we ask for your blessing on all of these women, all of the stories. In your name we pray, amen. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Women.